Welcome to Interleaved, where we take a deep dive into topics from the Daf Yomi with modern-day stages of the Torah and the world. I'm the Tanal Zelos Pelé. On today's episode, our better angels. Jews are imagining different angels around them and the Shekhinah above them for a long time. They're invisible. They're invincible. 77% of Americans believe they're real. And yet there are still a lot of Jews who don't realize how significant a role angels play in their tradition. Thankfully, there's a short passage in Tractate Chagiga that crams in more references to angels than in any other place in the Talmud. So we asked Dr. Mika Ahuvia, expert in Jewish angelology, to give us our wings as we explore the heavenly realms. Dr. Mika Ahuvia is an associate professor of classical Judaism in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. Her book, On My Right Michael, On My Left Gabriel, Angels in Ancient Jewish Culture, investigates conceptions of angels in foundational Jewish texts and ritual sources. Mika also co-edited the volume, Placing Ancient Texts, the Rhetorical and Ritual Use of Space, and has published book chapters and articles on ancient ritual magic, gender and rabbinic literature, and late antique archaeology. Mika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. I'm really excited for our conversation. So you literally wrote the definition for angelology for Routledge's 2016 Dictionary of Ancient Mediterranean Religions, which I have to say is so cool. How did that happen? Was your life kind of always building up to this moment? You know, there's so many ways we can tell the stories uh, of our lives. Um, but I, I, you know, my mom like reminded me that I used to decorate my room with uh, angel posters, but that's not at all what I had in mind. You know, um, You know, 20 years later, when I was studying at Princeton religion department and yeah, I was just coming across really interesting questions about the way people interacted with invisible beings. And I think I was reading Seth Schwartz book, Imperialism in Jewish Society. And he has this like throwaway line about how Jews lived in a world full of angels, but he didn't really explain what that was like. And I was like, wait, I didn't really grow up with angels. Like, I just thought angels were like this cute pop culture thing. Like, what does it mean that ancient Jews, like that their lives were filled with angels? So that question was there. And then I just happened to be studying texts that gave me a way to get at the answers. So that's kind of where the book (laughs) came from. And once I wrote my dissertation on angels, then that invitation came to write that entry. That's amazing. I love that. With lots of, you know, other stuff in between, you know, I was a, I was a classical studies major. I loved like Roman archaeology of Israel. Like that was kind of my first love. And then I did a master's in Judaic studies and just, I love the arguments among Jews, you know, and, and like second temple Jewish sources, but then also in like rabbinic sources. I just loved seeing our history, like Jewish history um, in that way. And yeah, and angels were just like another way to get at that topic, uh, you know, during grad school, just challenging time. <laughs> <laughs> for sure so i know this is kind of a a big question maybe a difficult question to answer so no pressure but what would you say is your kind of central thesis of your book on my right michael on my left gabriel or maybe there are multiple theses or conclusions you've come to yeah so mainly um i wanted to show exactly how belief in angels was common among late antique Jews. And and by late antiquity, I mean kind of Jews who were living after the 
um, after all the biblical texts were basically composed, um, after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, those Jews, like in, you know, going through to the medieval period, like what was their relationship to angels like? So in, in part, it's a survey of angels and Jewish texts and lots of different Jewish texts, including Jewish texts that a lot of Jews don't know about. Um, so not just the Talmud, uh, but also ancient Jewish magical texts, ancient Jewish mystical texts, and um, liturgical poetry of the sixth century. So really kind of obscure texts that actually tell us a lot about Jewish life. And one of the arguments of my book is that to understand the rabbis, we actually have to look at texts not written by the rabbis. We have to be able to understand the community that they were talking to and arguing with and trying to influence. And if we look at all of those texts, we can see how the rabbis developed ideas about angels over time and in dialogue with different sectors of Jewish society, including mystics and poets and ritual practitioners. So that's the book's um, argument. Thanks so much for laying that out. That's really helpful and so fascinating. Yeah, I think I find that theme is kind of come up a lot in our podcast. What was the most surprising thing you learned in your research? I mean, there was, I guess, a lot that surprised me. I guess the the thing that stays with me the most years later is that like seven years ago, a student asked me after a book talk if women could be angels in Judaism or if angels could be feminine. And seven years ago, I was pretty sure that the evidence said no, that it was pretty binary, that, okay, like, demonesses can be feminine in Jewish thought, but I hadn't seen evidence for feminine angels um, in Jewish texts. And as I revised my dissertation, I just realized that the evidence was, like, right there in front of me, and I had, like, read it over and over again, but it was only, like, after kind of the student kind of challenged me that I saw it for the first time, and you know, I ended up deciding to like address this issue of gender and the angels in every chapter of my book. Um, but thankfully, an editor who was reading the book said, you know, you should just write a separate article about gender and the angels, emphasizing the evidence for feminine conceptualizations of angels in Jewish texts. And so that ended up becoming an article which should be published any day now <laughs> in Jewish studies quarterly. So yeah, I think that was the most surprising. I really thought that, you know, the rabbis, but also like ancient Jewish thinkers in general, you know, had this concept of like masculine, good and divine and feminine, you know, is demonic is, you know, very much in conversation with ancient uh, Greek norms, but that's actually not the case. That's so fascinating. I'm so like excited to read that article. So I'd like to provide a little more context to our discussion before we dive in. Another kind of big question, but how do angels figure into the Hebrew Bible and how did the rabbinic imagination, or I guess the imagination of Jews in antiquity kind of build on or challenge the Torah's idea of angels? You know, it's so interesting when I tell people that I work on angels in classical Jewish texts, there's, you know, two responses. One is like, what are you talking about? Jews don't believe in angels. And one is like, oh yeah, because like the angels visit Abraham, you know? And I'm like, oh yes. And what other stories can you think of? And they're like, oh, the angels visit Abraham. Uh, what else? Like um, the angels lead the Israelites in the wilderness, right? There's the representative angels. There's the angel of death, um, you know, in the Exodus story. Um, there's the seraphim in the temple. Like, you know, and, you know, you might even know about the seraphim, you know, in Isaiah's vision because you've maybe been to a synagogue and heard people saying, holy, 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 or you've 
seen how uh, Jews, when they're praying, right, they stand with straight legs, kind of an imitation of Ezekiel's discussion um, of angels and his visions. So, I mean, sometimes, you know, when I turn the question on people, they, they suddenly realize that their texts are filled with angels, but for some reason, they've kind of like unlearned that, or they've found a way of like reading around that. And I think that's mostly a product of maybe living of American Jews living in a Christian society and associating angels with Christian thought or with like pop spirituality and not recognizing that, you know, the reason Christians have angels is because right. They also consider the Hebrew Bible sacred. Now it's true that there are even more angelic depictions in the new Testament and in Christian writings, but that's matched by developments in Jewish texts that also get very excited about angels in the Hellenistic period. So the rabbis inherit, right, all of these sacred texts. Some of them they reject, right? So the myth of the fallen angels, by the way, is a, originally a Jewish myth. So it's one that's rejected by the rabbis, but everybody in the ancient world knew it. And so the rabbis have to like navigate what to do with um, this preoccupation with angels. And what I discuss in my book is that at the earliest strata of rabbinic literature, right? So like in the Mishnah and at Tosefta, um, and in the early Midrashim and the early interpretive texts, I see two tendencies. One is to like try to get Jews to ignore the angels. There really is a tendency there to get Jews to like just focus on God, right? Just don't don't get too preoccupied with the angels, which is just pretty unique in ancient religions. Only the rabbis seem to be a little bit nervous about this um, situation. But even in those early texts, in the Tosefta, we already find the tradition that, you know, when a pious person goes on a journey, angels of peace accompany him. Or when a wicked person goes on a journey, um, angels of destruction, <laughs> you know, accompany him. So it's obvious that the rabbis had like ideas about the invisible realm that they took for granted. But when they were in teaching mode and prescribing mode and legalistic mode, they preferred to tell Jews to focus on God instead. And that tendency kind of changes over the course of rabbinic literature. So by, by the time the Babylonian Talmud is kind of being put together, the rabbis are like, oh, come on, all the Jews believe in angels. Let's just, you know, let's just tell Jews how to, you know, pay attention to angels properly. You know, so they've really kind of shifted in their strategies with angels um, in a later period. That's so interesting. Yeah, it was interesting to, to kind of see parallel to that. We did an episode on demons uh, with Dr. Sarah Ronis and just to see like how demons figured so prominently in like halacha and Jewish law. Um, I'm uh, excited to hear more about how the rabbis really brought the angels back into their world. Yeah, I guess this is a good opportunity to say that because of Dan Brown, often when I say I work on angels, people are like, oh, you work on angels and demons. <laughs> and like, no, actually, I just, I, I work on angels. Uh, because even though that category, like angels and demons, like it seems really um, natural to us, as far as like my research shows, like the rabbis and other Jews talked about angels plenty without demons. So demons are certainly significant in, in Jewish thought as well, but it wasn't like everywhere you see, an, you see discussion of angels, you also find demons. Like they don't necessarily go together. They fulfill kind of many roles for, for Jews apart from the demonic realm. Thank you for pointing that out. And that that kind of aligns well with, you know, what we learned in that episode, that demons were seen to be part of like the natural world and not necessarily the supernatural world. All right, so let's dive into the daf. Our first encounter with angels in this tractate comes on 4b, 
where the Talmud relates that the Amoraic sage Bevai Bar Abaye was visited by the angel of death. The angel of death is unlike most other angels in that it spends much of its time on earth. It's also, I believe, I may be incorrect, the most frequently mentioned angel in the Talmud. What do we know about the angel of death from elsewhere in the Talmud and other second temple and rabbinic sources? Yes, the angel of death is really fascinating. Never named, but consistently referred to in every single strata of the Talmud. What's interesting to me about the angel of death, um, he's ranked fourth most powerful angel <laughs> in the rabbinic hierarchy. So it goes like Michael, Gabriel, Elijah, and the angel of death. I mean, there's so many wonderful stories um, about the angel of death and the rabbis interacting with him. And so I, I do summarize like some of them in my book. The main takeaway I have from him is that the rabbis never indicate that the angel of death is a scary figure. And one of the things my book discusses is that it seems that the rabbis took for granted that there are kind of these angels of peace and angels of destruction. And I, I talk about angels of destruction. Sometimes they're called angels of Satan as like the, the police force of the angelic realm. Like they, they're annoying. They, you know, people don't like them. People want to avoid them. But they actually are, they seem to be doing something like some enforcement um, in the invisible realm. And the angel of death, no one really likes him, but they're not scared of him. Because if you're a rabbi, right, you have the power of Torah to protect you. And you can sort of bargain with death and you can talk to death. And so it's never a a scary figure, which I really appreciate. (laughs) And uh, I wish we had... um, more stories you know people often think about angels um, in the context of of death like bands of angels that encounter a human soul when it departs the body right like we do find that um, in rabbinic literature right um i think we also find like this depiction of the angel as having a sword which kind of sounds like a green reaper like description um but it's also very clear that the rabbis had these superstitions about how to repel uh, the angel of death so like famously like this verse from zechariah chapter three, verse two, for some reason became very, considered to be very potent against the angel of death or the demonic. So Zechariah 3, 2 is the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, may the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you, for this is a brand plucked from the fire. So the rabbis believed that this verse would ward away the angel of death. And we find this not just in rabbinic literature, but also in Jewish incantation bowls from, from Babylonia. So that's like an interesting parallel. Yeah, I just wanted to add that also a lot of people have the custom to say that verse every night as part of the Kriyachama Alamita, like the Kriyachama before bedtime. Which is where the title of my book comes from. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, of course. <laughs> to you, does like the rabbinic depiction of the angel of death tell us anything about the rabbinic idea of death? Or is it more like about their own death? Like, are they not do they relate to the angel of death, I guess, with less fear because like they know the power of Torah will protect them? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that their sense is that they have all these role models who have interacted with the angel of death and prevailed. And, you know, they know that they can keep the keep away death uh, by studying Torah. So, I mean, obviously, if they're talking about the angel of death, they're scared. But at the same time, if they, they, they seem to have developed these imaginative strategies that also made them feel like there is order, right? There's order in the invisible realm. There's order in their lives. They're not powerless, right? They have tools and knowledge to protect them. 
Mm-hmm. How common is it in Jewish sources for, I guess, to have encounters with angels or like for humans to see angels or otherwise interact with them? How common is that? Like, and like maybe like when's the latest we see that? Do we see that like in medieval sources or? So in liturgical poetry of, of Yanai, he, he emphasizes that people are in synchronicity with the angels they pray but he doesn't necessarily emphasize that they're in the same room. In the ritual magical texts, you find these descriptions of people surrounding angels, right? So that the invocation of angels on all sides, right? The on my right, Michael, on my left, Gabriel, which is part of the nighttime Shema. We find that right in, um, in the liturgy as early as the, I think, 11th century, which is one of our earliest liturgical prayer books. It's from the ninth or 10th, like it's, it's not that early, but we find variations on that prayer already in Aramaic incantation bowls. Jews are imagining different angels around them and the Shekhinah above them for a long time. And I think for most Jews, like that continued to be the norm that they were aware that angels, you know, were in their life. Um, So, you know, in my book launch um, at UW, which, you know, you can find online, um, I talk about Mark Chagall, who wrote an autobiography and he describes how once when he was asleep, an angel came to his room and he like, there was like a really bright light and he like hears this like commotion of wings um, and he paints this encounter. He paints this encounter of an angelic visitation and he just like writes about it like it's a normal thing. Like it doesn't occur to him to like have to like explain this angelic visitation. And it's really, only after kind of the Holocaust that you see Jewish thinkers kind of questioning the presence of angels in their lives. Now, of course, at the same time, you have scholarly Jewish movements who are like trying to make Jews more like their conception of like modern Protestant citizens who don't believe in in intermediary beings. But it seems to me like most ordinary traditional Jews continue to believe that angels are a part of their life and that if they had a traditional upbringing, they have all of these stories and models and ways of believing that angels are present in their life. Um, And I think that just being in an American society, like that has an impact on the way we conceptualize the world. And so it's just become less common to believe that we are surrounded by divine presences, at least like in many Jewish communities that I've encountered, you know, if you go to like Catholic, you know, communities, they are also taught, you know, to believe in like real presence, the divine evangelical Christian communities, you see the same thing, they're really taught how to interact with the divine. Um, But from what I've seen in in most Jewish circles, like Jews just aren't taught, um, or they're not read the sources in the same way to continue to have those kinds of encounters. Yeah, so my survey of the sources, at least, and it gives you a sense of how people were trained, that you have to be trained to imagine these things in your life to believe that they're there. So there's also another angel mentioned in this story, Duma, who oversees the souls of the dead after the angel of death discharges them, so to speak, from this earth. Who is Duma? People always want biographies of angels, right? They want angels to be like really stable and for me to have like stories about them. Uh But most angelic names like appear once and you just don't see them um, again. But there's a, a lot of these like, Sons of Fon, Akatron. Like, I think we're going to see some of them like a little bit later in Chagiga. 
Yeah, they, they don't have a biography. The, the only one that does um, is Metatron. You know, and that's like, you know, everybody has like different stories about them and slowly like Jews start collecting these stories and, you know, developing that until legends. But yeah, aside from like Michael, Gabriel, Raphael, Metatron, maybe Uriel, like those like five I see pretty regularly. Anael, actually sometimes depicted as a feminine angel, like that one like appears pretty regularly in the sources, but you know, you can buy dictionaries of angelic names, but very few appear more than one or two times. Oh, wow. That's so fascinating. So the next reference to angels comes on 12b, where Rich Luckish lists the seven levels of heaven and what goes on in each of them. According to Rish Lakish, the fourth level, known as Zvul, is where the angel Michael, or Michael, offers sacrifices on a supernal altar in a heavenly temple that is a mirror image of the temple on earth. And in the seventh level, Aravot, the holiest kinds of angels, ministering angels, Seraphim, Chayot, and Ophanim, dwell underneath God's throne. Listeners may recognize some of these from Jewish liturgy. We mentioned Malachi Asharit, the ministering angels, in the Shalom Aleichem prayer on Friday nights, and Srafim Chayot and Ofanim in the blessings before the morning Shema. What do we know about the differences between these kinds of angels, if anything? So I should say that, you know, what, what you find in Chagigah here, and right, this depiction of a, a seven layered heavens, there's different Jewish conceptions of these heavens. So it's very, first of all, interesting that Chagigah even has this discussion because most of the Babylonian Talmud does not dwell on angels as intensely as this particular section of the Talmud. This is, I would say, one of the sections that's like most dense with references to angels. So, you know, if you compare this account here with some liturgical poetry that's contemporary, you see a different order for the seven heavens and probably different imagining about what's going on in this one. I mean, they're, they're, it's a beautiful image, right? You can see that the rabbis really kind of playing with, you know, speculating about what's going on in the heavenly realms, right? This idea that there's like, you know, there used to be a temple in Jerusalem, but okay, that's gone now. But in the heavens, like the kind of archetype for that image remains. And if Michael is the, you know, the one that's offering sacrifices, you know, that says something about the priests, you know, in the temple in the days of old, right? That the, the priests and angels are somehow analogous, right? And I think that probably was a very comforting image to ancient Jews who identified as priests. So I, I feel like I can talk less about <laughs> the angels that they speculate about and more about like, what did this do for the humans who told these stories, right? Like it's, um, it's interesting how much, how interested Jews were in imagining themselves imitating the angels. And that's kind of a theme that I saw um, in late antiquity among Jews, that Jews are really preoccupied with being angelic, not just praying through angels to the heavens, but really uh, imitating them in behavior. Yeah, that was great, because I was going to ask as a follow-up question, like, what, what do you see as a function of this passage? And I think that that really answers the question well. It's interesting to see, like, parallels, you know, the rabbis kind of construct parallels between human beings and uh, angels. And the other hand, sometimes we see them contrast humans and angels. I remember like a passage in Brachot saying, Lo Torah like the Torah was not given to angels, but it's given to humans because angels are perfect and humans are not. And also like other examples of, you know, 
the differences and and also i think there's another passage that says you know humans are better than angels because angels stay in one spot and humans can walk or they can move around they can like i guess progress in spiritual growth yeah these were really these were really hot topics um, in the late ancient world among jews and christians and others so you know like how one could relate to angels right you know there were some christians that asserted that people who chose celibacy were basically angels in human form and i think that might have been a, like a real like not i don't want to say the word threat that sounds too powerful but like i think that was a really appealing idea to some people and jews were like we need to like find ways to also feel powerful in the way we relate and talk about angels you know so in like jewish liturgical poetry of that era yanai this poet insists that when jews obey the torah you know when they pray that like they are angels right they are just like the angels and when they reproduce and circumcise their children they are like the angels like that these things the rituals that jews do don't make them less um, angelic you know in the way that some you know christians might claim right so to say you know the torah wasn't given to angels it, it's you know in a sense to acknowledge human shortcomings and to say that that's like, okay, like it wasn't intended for perfect beings, like perfect beings don't need the Torah, humans need the Torah. So, it, you know, it's a way of making space for, for humanity. For sure. I found that really beautiful. On 13b, the Talmud attempts to resolve a contradiction between two verses about angels, one in the book of Daniel and one in the book of Job. The verse in Daniel says that a thousand angels serve God and another hundred million stand before God, while the verse in Job appears to imply that the number of angels in heaven is infinite. The Talmud resolves this apparent contradiction by answering that the number of angels has diminished since the destruction of the temple. So I think you sort of addressed this already, but if you have anything else to add, what does this passage tell us about how the rabbis understood the relationship of angels to the temple? and perhaps the ancient Jewish past in general. So I thought you were actually gonna ask about another comparison that's made in, in one of these pages here, which is about like, why does Isaiah say that the angels have six wings? You know, while Ezekiel that they only have four wings, right? So this is like this discussion of like, why is it say this here and this here? Like the, the rabbis are of course believe that the Torah is a harmonious book. So there has to be um, an explanation. And they conclude that you know, things have become progressively worse, right? That the destruction of the first temple, um, but also is correlated with the loss of two wings. And that's why angels, you know, went from six to four to, to two. So I, I love that the rabbis are speculating about this and also acknowledging that there's a change in the way that people conceptualized angels. This is true that in, in ancient Mesopotamia um, and in ancient Egypt, right, there were beings with four or six wings. But in the Hellenistic period, the more kind of bird-like two-winged figure becomes really more dominant in the visual art. And that impacts the way Jews too imagine the invisible realm. So they kind of come to see um, and imagine angels in the same way that the ancient Greeks and Romans and other inhabitants of the Mediterranean world did. So we, we can see some connections um, in these discussions here. Yeah. Another resolution offered to this contradiction suggests that in fact, the number of angels is infinite, and 100 million is the number of angels that attend to the river Dinor, literally river of fire, which is said to flow from the sweat of the angels, 
to upon the heads of the wicked in hell. Perhaps a Jewish answer to the river Styx. What else do we know about this strange river? That's an obscure question. Um, I don't, <laughs> what I can say about that tradition is that in every kind of Jewish text that I've studied, angels are always associated with fire. That's one of the few things that all ancient Jews agreed on. There's something about angels that makes them fiery. And yeah, so I think, so when the rabbis encounter a river of fire, I think they automatically go to, oh, well, angels are created there or they die there or they're, they're like you suggest, like their tears, you know, are part of this river. Yeah, so that that's the only kind of thing I, I can add to the source is that angels are fiery and changeable. They're not quite corporeal, right? Because fire, you can see it it produces heat, but you can't really capture it, right? <laughs> so those of us who have been in certain niches of Twitter in the past few years may be aware of an increased interest in yeah. quote-unquote biblically accurate angels. I love this name. Which usually just means things with a lot of eyes on them, especially cats. <laughs> <laughs> so two very important questions I'll, I'll close with. So. Is this a thing? Are these angels actually biblically accurate? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you read Ezekiel chapter one and chapter 10, he has some really crazy, um, I mean, really non-figural, I should say, they're not crazy. They're non-figural conceptualizations of angels, like a wheel of eyes, like a wheel of eyes. This is a Hebrew of fun, right? Um, or, you know, the, they are, they're really weird and and fantastical and uh, pretty unique to Ezekiel uh, but nonetheless like it's there so I love it when people do crafty art and try to like actually bring out what um, Ezekiel was imagining um, you know I've been to some interesting Christian churches in like Greece that also like depict um, the Ezekiel's visions and yeah it's like it's bizarre and fantastical looking um, so that's important. I, I do want to quote um, Annette Reed, professor of uh, classical Judaism and Christianity at um, NYU, but I think moving to Harvard. She pointed out that what she likes about the biblically accurate angel meme is that it sort of decenters the imagining of like the white angel, the white guy angel, <laughs> right? Or like the like um, you know the Victorian angel, like the feminine pop art angel. So like it kind of defamiliarizes things and makes them like foreign and fantastical in a, in a way that's important because that's, that is also part of the story of angels. They're not just, they're not cherubim, right? Or they're not the cute cherubim. When I say cherubim, you know, you're probably thinking of the cute Renaissance thing, right? But cherubim in the Hebrew Bible are like terrifying sword, polymorphic creatures, right? So it's more that. So we, I think it is important to bring back into our imagination that there was a time when angels were these beings that really terrified um, people, right? You, you don't necessarily want an out of this world um, encounter. And it's only kind of over the, the course of the Hellenistic period, but especially late antiquity, that you think you people start imagining angels as benevolent presences in their lives that they're not afraid of, but in fact can welcome into their house, right? And welcome in on 
Sabbath evening, right? Like if you think Shalom Aleichem, right? What are you doing? You're literally welcoming angelic creatures into your house. Um, like it, it takes time to, to get there. But yeah, biblical accurate angel be another part of our tradition. You know? <laughs> it's important. Uh, just a follow-up to that question. So do you believe like the Kruvim in the, the Mishkan and the first temple were like actually you know, made to represent those angels or no? So, um, and, you know, in uh, the book of Kings, Kings first Kings, right, we have a description of Solomon's temple. There's a pretty clear description of like, of like of what's on the walls, right? The art on, and it includes um, depictions. I think it's like a, a lion with wings in human faith. I think that's what cherubim was in that context. And, and we do find, you know, royal art from ancient Mesopotamia that's just like that. Right, so the, the cherub is very much um, an interaction with Mesopotamian ideas about divine guardian figures. And we, the first appearance of the cherubim in the Torah is um, at the end of the story of Adam and Eve. I think it's chapter three, um, at the end of chapter three, um, right? There's a cherubim stationed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden, and he hasn't ever turning flaming sword and so actually to, to you go back to the first question you asked me about what surprised me the most right so that it was like the feminine angels um so in rabbinic traditions and in poetic interpretation um, this idea of an ever turning revolving flaming sword inspires this idea that god can make the angels into anything including masculine and feminine beings or even demons, you know. So um, that particular image with the cherub and the fanning sword, uh, I think at the beginning of Genesis, it turns out to have a very long afterlife. As a concluding question, like, you know, to follow up with that, what do you think the renewed interest in angels and esoteric theology in general, what do you think it says about our culture, perhaps, if anything? I think uh, millennials and Generation Z don't trust institutions. I think um, Pew surveys show that, that young people don't trust institutional religion. And angels have always been inspirational because they're non-institutional, right? They transcend boundaries. So I'm not surprised that people are interested in reading and understanding um, them more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. For sure. I've ha- I have had one scholar ask me, like, well, doesn't that worry you that so many, like, Americans believe in angels, right? Because, like, surveys, so like, 77% of Americans believe in angels, guardian angels. And, I mean, look, everybody needs therapy, especially during this pandemic, right? We, we all have voices in our heads, so, like, we should all go and make sure that we can distinguish the real voices, you know, from the inspirational voices, the critical voices. So that's like my disclaimer, first of all. Um, When I used to give public talks and people used to come to approach me afterwards and they would often tell me about how guardian angels had intervened in their lives. I don't know, it sounded pretty positive and harmless. And like, who am I to question like their experiences? like? I don't take a stand, right? As an academic, I don't take a stand about whether angels are real or not, but I can say that for thousands of years, people have believed that they're real and lived their lives in that way. As you said, it's still till today, 
believing in angels clearly adds value to people. Dr. Mika Ahuvia, thank you so much. Thank you. Between episodes, you can keep up with Interleaved on Facebook and Twitter. If you like what you heard, follow us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and share this with your friends. Special thanks to our executive producer, Adina Karp. Come back next time for another deep dive.